being authentic and maintaining integrity over how you're presenting your organization and what your values are, who your stakeholders are, and how you rank them in terms of priority. To me, that's really important. And I sort of resist this idea of everybody fitting into the same box. And I think ESG has promoted that a little bit. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have back with me David Simon, partner at Fuller Mardner. And we're going to talk about an article he posted in LinkedIn called The G in ESG. I found this article uh, really interesting. And more importantly, I think every compliance practitioner needs to understand the role of not simply the G in ESG, but also compliance in the G in ESG and the governance component of compliance. So David, first of all, that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Tom. David, in reading your article, it appears at least the kernel of your thought about writing it came out of your coursework in Oxford. So if that's correct, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the course on governance and ethics and how it gave you an insight into the role of G. Yeah, it did. So we just finished in my executive MBA program, we just finished the module on governance and ethics. And our professor, Alan Morrison, I think has formulated this construct that I thought was pretty helpful in terms of how to think about this stuff. The idea is we're trying to get at like business ethics and what's the sort of the source of sort of organizational ethics and corporate ethics as opposed to just individual. And Professor Morrison starts with this idea of there being a corporate mind, some sort of set of beliefs and sort of principles that the corporation, the organization thinks in some sense. And from that, he sort of has formulated this concept of the meta contract, which I thought was a pretty cool concept. The idea of the meta contract is sort of the what the corporation presents to the world in terms of how it will do business, what business it's in, what it won't do. And I think it sort of encompasses this sort of broad notion of you know, kind of corporate culture and the brand and how the organization sort of ultimately presents itself to the world. And he calls this the meta contract, right? So the idea is what the corporate mind presents publicly as to what this organization is all about is its meta contract. It's sort of who it is, what it is, what it's not. And then from that, the idea of governance is what, how well or poorly does the company adhere to its meta contract, right? How does it, does it behave in the way it presents itself to the world as sort of its brand, its culture, its reason for existing? So governance then is this idea of what do we do as a company to ensure that we're operating the way we say we're going to operate? That was the essence of it. And I thought that was a pretty helpful way to think about governance and also, frankly, compliance as part of that. So how you present yourself to the outside world is a key component of ESG, whether it's positively in terms of your trying to show you're reducing your carbon footprint, or even if we took the flip side negatively with allegations of greenwashing, 
But it strikes me, David, that's precisely what compliance professionals do day in and day out. First of all, they do a risk assessment and then from there, of course, set up a risk management strategy. But it's a continual process of monitoring, adjusting, calibrating, reporting those results both up and down the chain. So that was one of the insights I had in reading your article that if we took it up from the level of the specificity of compliance and really moved into the meta contract concept or moving more towards culture and perhaps an even an ethical values of the corporation, would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's right. And so the thing that I'm really most interested in, I mean, I think all compliance professionals know, right, that things like culture, the tone at the top are really critically important in terms of making sure that the company adheres to its meta contract, that it behaves the way it says it's going to behave, that it behaves consistently with its values. What I'm about to say doesn't take anything at all away from that. I think those are critical concepts and who you hire and who you promote and those sort of key culture issues are really important. But I also think things like procedures and internal controls become incredibly important. And I do think that's sort of the thing that compliance professionals are best at in terms of like, okay, let's create a culture. We can promote a culture. We can make sure we're saying the right things. We can make sure we're living out our values at an executive level and a senior management level. But as a company gets bigger and sprawls and has people in all kinds of different parts of the world, particularly in this time of COVID and no travel. What are we doing as an organization to make sure to prevent the rogue employee from doing something that undermines that meta contract? And that's to me where the the idea of the procedures and internal controls becomes so important and an area where I think is not getting as much attention in the ESG space as it warrants. So the, the other thing that struck me may even be almost philosophical, but by using the meta contract, my concern was people would simply see this as a legal construct. Like, oh, it's a contract. It's just a piece of paper and people have agreed to it. But it's really much broader than that. And do you think using the words meta contract would actually either negatively impact the concepts behind it? The other thought I had was, this is something lawyers like us can embrace. And oh yeah, it's a contract. But it's a contract in the way we're going to deal with people. And this is an audio-only podcast, so those not watching on video will not see me putting my hand out and shaking it up and down because it's basically your word. And that struck me as an incredibly important concept. And if I could even tie it in a different way, I heard David Baldacci do a course on writing once, and they asked him to talk about brand. And he said, everyone has brand wrong. They think of that as, well, that's your image, what you do. But no, brand is your word. And as a writer, your word is, I write thrillers, I'm going to write a thriller. And if you pick up a Baldacci, you expect to read a thriller. Now, I can change that, but I have to tell you, I'm going to change that. So this Baldacci is a rom-com. And that struck me, and I kind of tied those two to the article you wrote, because the meta contract could almost be seen as the corporation's word. It's an interesting way to think about it. And I, I actually do worry a little bit about now that the word meta has kind of been appropriated too. So now everybody's thinking like, you know, Oculus headsets and, and some sort of cartoon reality. And I don't think that's really what we're talking about. I like the idea of the word 
You know, another idea as you were talking, another sort of word that came to my mind as you were talking was the idea of maybe a covenant, right? I don't want to get overly biblical on everyone here, but I mean, that, that has a level more of a deeper kind of more fundamental agreement or representation than maybe contract does. But I think getting at the same thing, I think that's really it. It's your word about who you are as a writer in Baldacci example, or as a corporation in our world. So we now have multiple stakeholders, really for every corporation in the kind of Milton Friedman world, we had shareholders. And on the statement on the purpose of a a corporation by the business roundtable, we have at least five stakeholders. There may be additional beyond that. But how do we not so much assess the different views of those stakeholders, but how do we incorporate each one of those stakeholders? Is it through sitting down with them and engaging in dialogue to see what's important because a shareholder may be different than an employee, may be different than a third party, may be different than a customer or the people, uh, localities where we're doing business, all of those different types of stakeholders. But it seems like we're juggling a lot of different interests in ESG now. I think it's really tricky. And I'm sort of a fairly recent convert to the notion of stakeholder capitalism. And I'm not sure I'm fully converted, but this is one of the topics we discussed in our course as well at some length. And I do accept and believe that there should be something beyond just pure shareholder capitalism for a whole bunch of reasons. That's a whole separate probably podcast. But the question that I keep asking myself on this is, okay, so once you accept stakeholder capitalism, where do you draw the lines in terms of who the stakeholders really are, right? Because there's a whole mob of people on Twitter at any given point in time who think they're a stakeholder in your in your organization. They may be or they may not be. I think really the key to this is sort of authenticity and integrity. You know, one of the things that I see that I'm a little skeptical of is this sort of every organization trying to fit itself into kind of the same ESG vision or model. You know, I don't think every business organization is or should be the same in that respect. They all have different meta contracts and we have different expectations of them depending on how they present themselves externally. I think being authentic and maintaining integrity over how you're presenting your organization and what your values are, who your stakeholders are, and how you rank them in terms of priority. To me, that's really important. And I sort of resist this idea of everybody fitting into the same box. And I think ESG has promoted that a little bit. I think you're seeing a follow the leader, check the box, fit into a construct approach from some organizations that I think is bound to fail because I don't think it really represents their true meta contract. So I think this is a very individualized exercise, and I think it's important for company leadership and companies to be really honest and look at who they are, what they are, what they want to be, what they aspire to be, and there are all kinds of strategic questions embedded in that as well. But from just an ESG perspective, authenticity and integrity to me are really two key, key concepts. David, could perhaps we draw upon our own personal experiences with anti-bribery corruption in terms of FCPA compliance programs, where in the first decade of this century, many of the programs put in place were exactly what you described. 
one-stop shops for compliance, whether that be in, in a manufacturing industry, whether it be in the energy industry or, or any other industry. And all of those are very disparate. And as anti-corruption compliance evolved, the Department of Justice began to communicate and to, to still does to this day, it's not compliance risk, it's your risk, whatever your risk may be. And you start with your risk and you build out your risk management structure and program from that point. Could we perhaps be at the same point with ESG where here we are a little bit earlier on, obviously, and people are really starting with one program. And as you suggest, every company needs to assess its own materiality for each one of the letters, the E, the S, and the G, and then build a program around that. Could that be part of the natural evolution that we're going to see of ESG going forward? I think so. It's actually interesting that you should make that comparison because I was in a presentation about sort of supply chain, human rights, child labor, forced labor issues. And the reaction from the crowd reminded me almost exactly of the reaction we got from our clients 10, 15 years ago when we started talking about how they're responsible for their intermediaries paying bribes and that they needed to figure out a practical risk-based way to address that risk for that company. A lot of that was happening in this recent discussion I had of like, well, wait, you really expect me to know what my suppliers are doing and how is that realistic? And it's so aspirational and far-fetched. I mean, you probably remember having similar conversations with your clients about bribery and third parties, like we can't possibly control what they do. And so it really struck me to exactly to your point that this is, particularly with respect to this sort of the S piece and to the extent it relates to forced labor and human rights issues, we're at a very early stage. I do think that the FCPA and anti-bribery sort of structures that have developed over the years are really helpful for these other areas of ESG as well. I think the level of sophistication of policies, procedures, controls, third-party intermediary programs, cash control issues, all the stuff that lots of people have been spending a lot of time over the last decade on in the bribery world really provide some really good frameworks for some of these other issues that are now becoming higher priorities. And we have the benefit of enforcement authority guidance, as you say, DOJ and SEC have been really helpful in advancing those discussions and advancing the thinking on controls and procedures and what's expected and what's reasonable and how to tailor it to specific company risks. So sort of a long-winded way of saying I totally agree. I think we are at an early stage in the ESG world, but I do think the FCPA and anti-bribery world provides a good roadmap. I mean, obviously this stuff needs to be adapted, but the core concept that you flagged of being risk-tailored and focused on your particular company's risk, I think is really important. There's one paragraph in your article, and we're going to link to David's article in the show notes. And I want to read it because I want to ask you some questions. And the paragraph reads, quote, corporate governance then is simply how closely a firm's operations conform to its meta contract. What structures, controls, policies, and procedures does it have in place to ensure it does business in a way that it publicly professes it will do so? How effectively do those structures, controls, policies, and procedures operate in the real world? And David, in rereading that paragraph, it struck me that it allows corporate governance literally at the top of an organization, such as a board of directors, to make 
fairly general statements about the meta contract or culture or ethics in the company, but it, then it details lower down the organization how you would bring in a way to assure compliance with that corporate governance. And that's through, of course, policies and procedures. But then it allows the reporting on those policies and procedures that a compliance professional does during ongoing monitoring back up to the top of the organization. So in that paragraph, I really saw a way to think through corporate governance or the G in ESG literally from the top to the bottom and back up. That's a great way to think about it. I really do think compliance professionals and lawyers who practice in this space are really well suited to take that meta contract and implement it in a way that's enforceable and consistent throughout the organization. That's what they're good at. That's what they're trained to do. I hadn't, before you just said it, I hadn't thought about the sort of reporting back up, but I, I think that's exactly right. I think that is also what compliance professionals are really good at doing is collecting data, giving senior management and boards of directors information about their efforts to implement and execute the meta contract in a sprawling, broad organization and provide that feedback back up to the board and, and the management team. It's a great way to think about it. I think it's exactly right. So I'd like to maybe end our discussion by referring to your penultimate paragraph in the first sentence of that paragraph, which says, quote, any regulatory or legal violation is a failure of corporate governance. And you go on to cite a couple of failures. But that, to me, almost reframed the issue and put the G in a very important stead. And it really, I think, gives the compliance professional and perhaps the general counsel and the general counsel's office a way to talk to the board that I think they're going to be very comfortable with because of the paragraph you have before that, that yes, you've set a general tone for us, but then we've had to implement ways to assure compliance with that tone. And so to think about a FCPA violation, an accounting fraud, or you name the, the violation as a corporate governance failure, I think really highlights for the board the importance of this and even more the importance of their role in corporate governance too. How do you see kind of that? I think it's a really important point. And I do think one of the great things about ESG is I think it also allows compliance to broaden its thinking a little bit, broaden its horizons, because compliance can get very focused on true compliance with the law or with regulatory regimes, which I think has obviously got to be a priority. And I do think that sort of my first point in that sentence was the meta contract always includes at least an implicit representation that the organization is going to follow the laws of the jurisdiction in which it incorporates. I mean, that's almost by adoption of the law that you're incorporating and therefore you're, you're adopting a commitment to do that. But it's more than that, I think. One of the things I was thinking about when I wrote that paragraph is about, you know, there are certain violations, certain scandals that are worse than others. And there are certain scandals that are worse with a particular organization than others. And I think it ties to what their meta contract is, right? It ties to who they are and who they proclaim to be to the world. And when there's a violation, maybe even not a violation of the law, but a violation of who they really are as an organization, that's a much bigger governance problem, I think, for the company or the organization than anything else could be, right? And when it goes to the heart, when you screw up 
in a way that goes to the heart of your meta contract of who you say you are, that's catastrophic. I haven't thought about this maybe enough. I need to spend some more time developing this idea. But, you know, I use the example in my article of Arthur Anderson, right? Arthur Anderson is the rock of accounting firms and the conservative, reliable, big, I guess, six it was then. Their role in the Enron scandal, it, it was so bad, obviously, it eliminated Arthur Anderson as a firm. But to me, the dynamic there is that where the violation occurred, where they strayed, was so closely tied to their meta contract of who they were representing themselves to be to the world that they just couldn't survive it. So I think from a compliance perspective, compliance professionals need to think more broadly than just the laws and the regulatory framework to more about what their organizational meta contract is. And they need to take steps to protect their organizations from violating it because it can be disastrous when they do. David, I don't know if you developed this philosophical insight through your Oxford educational experience or it was hidden there all along when you were lecturing to me on how you could put up, set up a compliance program for distributors. But this is just great stuff. And I hope that not only can we continue this conversation, but I hope that you can have this conversation with your colleagues and clients as well, because if you can sit down and talk to literally the top levels and strategy makers in an organization in this way, I certainly think it's going to be a great way for them to gain traction with ESG, but more importantly, with the ethical component, with the cultural component. I, I interviewed a woman yesterday, Allison Taylor, and she works at a company or academic group called Ethical Systems. And she really talked about the ethical component of ESG and that from her perspective, we needed to have those conversations. And it seems like you can have these conversations through the construct of the meta contract. So I look forward to continuing this conversation. It's always a pleasure, Tom. I enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.